Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes host examine the 1946 William Wyler classic, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm your guest host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm the creator of several podcasts, including Locked On MLB and Bull Durham Minute. I've also been a comedian, a filmmaker, a television producer, an occasional actor, and now I'm a teacher. And today we are going to be talking about Minute 129, which begins with Frederick Marx saying he might forget himself and break Dana Andrews's neck and ends with Dan Andrews saying he will not see Peggy again. Well, someone we are seeing again is our guest from Minute 126 and the creator of the wonderful site, Another Old Movie Blog, it's Jacqueline T. Lynch. Welcome back to the show. Thanks very much, Sully. I'm very happy to be here. I think when we last left off, Frederick March was alone smoking in the hallway, thinking about Peggy being in love with Dana Andrews and how interesting the whole family dynamic was becoming. The next scene where he confronts Fred, yeah. Dana Andrews, mm-hmm. is almost a hearkening back to what is comfortable ground for him at this point, although I'm sure his character would find that ironic, is the war, where he says to Fred, I've learned some dirty fighting and I wouldn't want to hurt you. And I'm sure he has learned some dirty fighting. So he's facing off with Fred like a bulldog, like man to man. He's not saying I'm really concerned here about my daughter. He's saying you back off because you're a bum and my daughter's a nice girl. And the wonderful thing about that scene And Weiler does this in so many of his movies. He has that moment, that deadening, leaden moment of silence where they just sit there. And I'm sure it was a temptation for the actors to say something, to move, to twitch, to do something, because it's not natural to have, I suppose in radio, radio you'd call it dead air, but it's not natural to have that on film. And Weiler was famous for it. And it was it's so much more effective than paragraphs of words sometimes. It certainly was in this, because we see Dana Andrews working through it all in his mind, seeing himself as if he's looking in a mirror. Yeah, I am a bum. I am in a mess. My wife is never, I'm never gonna pull it out now. I came home with these big ideas and they've fallen flat on my face. I can't get this girl involved with me. I'm just in a rut. A guy who grew up on the other side of the tracks with a floozy wife. Nothing's ever going to change. This family is too nice for the likes of me. And he's, he Uh, plays it all through his mind. Oh, it's, I've said, it's my favorite scene in the movie. I think it's the best acted scene in the movie. I think it's, it's, there's so much that's happening on the surface and beneath the surface in it. And if you're just casually watching the scene, it's just two guys sitting in the booth of a bar. But in the context of everything that built up, but also with the context of where these two guys were coming from when they met. that And yeah. it's wonderful that it takes place in the bar where they all, their first night where they were all having a wonderful time. I think it was in the same booth as they it were. It was. <laughs> and, and to see... When it gets tense and the confrontation, as my brother, who's a guest on one of the other episodes, pointed out that 
they they do the side the, the the side angles where it's really confrontational and it, it it's kind of awkward to watch it as a audience member that they're that it's a face off and it does it it and, makes you uncomfortable yeah and but the other thing is again we talked in the other uh, from the other scene that Weiler and Greg Tolan do things that are beautiful without being a show off and when the, the first shot of the scene and later when Harold Russell comes in, he does, there's an amazing depth of field. Like the whole thing is in focus. You see people coming in through the door. Oh yeah. Everything's in focus. Your eye can go all over the place, but when it gets confrontational, all of, they don't show any of that. It's just, you don't see the bar. You don't see the other people. It's just them. And all the warmth and friendliness yeah. of being in the bar is gone. And it's just these two. The the they the wall is black. You when they're doing the shot reverse okay. shot, you don't see the other people in the background. It's very isolating and very even it it almost I feel badly for the poor waiter who came in at one point and leaves. It's <laughs> it's the one um reminder that they're actually in the bar. But I to me that's that's it's it's one of the reasons why it's my favorite scene in the film is that it's not a war movie <laughs> and it's not a fighting movie, but there's lots of moments of collision of tension without it being them screaming at each other. And even when they're threatening to fight, they're doing it in a very kind of even keel, very matter of fact way, which makes it even more unnerving. You, you almost want, you're almost, you almost yeah. want Frederick March to scream, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know it is it's a wonderful wonderful scene and how it dovetails how they they pull back and they show Fred has gone back to talk in the in the phone booth mm -hmm. and Homer's there and they're playing the piano and Frederick March is looking nervously at Fred in the phone booth smiling at Homer looking nervously at Fred then the football gets passed to Teresa Wright who's on the <laughs> other end of the phone call and it's like they're, they, it's like they're playing keep away with the plot. It's amazing. And and but but as you're pointing out that that plot points, they have the discipline to allow something to happen in the background. They have the discipline yeah. to allow someone to walk in, like when Harold Russell walks back when he leaves to go to the phone booth, and Harold Russell comes in through the front door. They don't cut to the front door. They let Harold walk to the back yeah. they allow yeah. it to have a friend because we've just had the tent scene so now we've opened it back up and that's what it's like at a bar hey you're over here and it, <laughs> so, it, so it's a very warm feeling there but it's funny i never thought of this until you and i were just just chatting about this but again this is one of the reasons why by the way for those of you listening we've never met before today <laughs> like I emailed you, I think yesterday or today, because I just stumbled yeah. across it. So we're 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 on this, but we're on the same wavelength. Where are you physically on the planet right now? I'm in Massachusetts, whereabouts? Western Mass. Where whereabouts? It's a town called Chigby on the Connecticut River in Western Mass. Okay, I used to live in Weston, which is near. Uh, Waltham oh, yeah. and, and everything, and and I'm a native of Connecticut, but my family moved to Massachusetts. I'm now in Pasadena, California. But the well, you'll appreciate what one of my notes I had here. Harold Harold Russell was from Wayland, 
which was the next town over from where I grew up. I grew up in Weston. Harold Russell is from Wayland. <laughs> yeah. And when he comes in, it, what, there's this, there's a story that Weiler was enraged that Selznick tried to hire an acting coach for Harold Russell because he, oh, yeah. he yeah. wanted and he loved the naturalistic feel. He didn't want Harold Russell to be affected. He wanted him to have that natural quality, that wonderful natural quality that he had. And when he comes walking in and says, oh, oh how are you? He sounds like the guys I grew up with. He sounded like a guy from Wayland, you know, and not, yeah. one of his, not one of these people who fake a Massachusetts accent where inevitably they sound like a Kennedy. But that's sort of sort of Gladys George, too, who plays Fred Derry's uh, stepmother. Mm -hmm. She's from the area. She's from Massachusetts. And she you can see it in her long, yeah. long vowels. Yeah. And and also that that there seems there that the 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 rhythm of a Massachusetts voice isn't just the long vowels and the drop of the R's, but you you always get the sense he's going to say something kind of sarcastic. And <laughs> I always wondered when I first was a, a young person in high school when I first saw this movie, I always wondered what these two New Englanders were doing in the Midwest. <laughs> how, how did they get there? <laughs> Because to me, being a New Englander, they stuck out like a sore thumb. Oh, which is maybe the wrong thing to say about Harold Russell in this film. But the you would you hear that that voice that sounds like the people that I grew up with. That sounds like the Steve Taglientes or the Mike Tulaberries, the two names that guys I went to high school with who had those had that kind of thick accents. Mine, mine is. My, I've lost most of my accent, but it shows up, especially when I get mad watching a Red Sox game. But it has that warm, genuine quality to him, which which comes over when Hoagie Carmichael, the great composer who has the, oh. the plays Butch, yeah. and they go over and they start doing the chopsticks. There's a great sense of humor that he has. Obviously, he's dealing with it, and he's being he has the moments obviously when he breaks the, the glass with his hooks and he and he 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 shuts everyone off but that's also a pretty new england thing i don't, don't want to deal with my real emotions i want to yeah i'll make a joke or two and and not deal with it so he's a he's so a quintessential new yorker thing. yeah it's that's also another great thing in this movie is that Weiler is very bold about letting the hooks be shown mm -hmm not just as, oh, I'm having difficulty doing something, but the natural everyday things. I mean, he pushes his hat back, he picks up a glass, he plays the chopsticks, he picks up a pen to write his name. We're allowed to see them right from the beginning. And Weiler is, it, that's the, I think that's the only instance in the whole movie where that seems forced and in a good way. He's mm -hmm. saying, okay, this is his reality now. Mm -hmm. He has to deal with it, so you, the audience, you're going to deal with it too. Well, and it's, that, it's a wonderful thing. And it's brilliant how it's introduced when they're in the, I want to say the way station. They're in the place where they're getting in, on the plane at the beginning of the film. Yeah, and he just the, has He just has them. And then like, there's, do you want me to write for this? No, I got it. It's sort of like, I'm dealing with it. No, this is, Yeah. don't, like, I'm going to acknowledge it. And he makes jokes about it which is, of course, another New England thing to do. I'm going to totally just sort of take any of the tension away here. But it makes it so he is a, obviously he's an extraordinarily sympathetic character. And you see him dealing with so many things about his insecurities about it. But they never make him a pathetic character. 
They never make no, him a character no, that, oh, poor widow. You don't want to, you know, he, they don't make him kind of like a childlike or at least from my generation, the expression would be like an after school special. Like yeah. he, he he's someone, he's a real man who is dealing with this and has to adjust his life and his family have to adjust their lives around it. And it makes for, it makes it feel so much more real. And which that, in that essence, it makes it seem so much more, uh, the emotional wallop of the film is so much more uh, effective because of that. Yeah. I was going to bring this up. This actually, this hadn't occurred to me until you and I were, were bantering back and forth here. But there is that moment when Frederick March and Dane Andrews are in the booth and they stay on Dane Andrews' face for about four seconds longer than any other director would do it. <laughs> they just, we're just going to stay on him. Like, and they and did. It breaks your heart. Because, oh, it totally does. Because his expression falls and, oh, it just breaks your heart. And and Dave Andrews does a lot of great things in that scene, especially when he's first confronted with it. And there's a moment like, is there any law compelling me that I have to answer? It's like he's stalling, like at the beginning, like yeah. he's not sure what to do. But then he decide he makes the decision like, well, might as well do the right thing. But at the end there, there's that moment where there's a little bit of the stare down at the end, where it's like he knows what the right thing is to do, and that moment of i guess i'm going to do it but it's not they don't have the music swelling they don't have the camera pushing in they don't have and i love how he pays for the drinks oh yeah which is it's just like i'll pay for the drinks that's a little it's a little bit of a middle finger there he's giving but yeah uh, yeah (laughs) i was thinking though i had this i had this flash of my dad who who just died and and i i I miss Um, i love him sorry to hear that yeah he i used to get when i would get in trouble with my pop my pop was a yeller. The, he was the he was the classic loud Irish, you know, they're not going to talk to them. And he would holler and yell and everything. My mom from the Italian side of my family, when I'd get in trouble with my mom, her arms would be folded and she would be silent. <laughs> and when I was a kid, I used to not want to get in trouble with my dad because he would holler and everything like that. When I got older, I didn't want to get in trouble with my mom because I realized... <laughs> When my dad was yelling at me, I knew where I stood. I knew where it was. And in 10 minutes, it was going to be over. And in 15 minutes, we're going to be watching the ball game. When my mom, <laughs> silence. And like, like, would you please yell at me? <laughs> and I, that face that Dana Andrews had was the face that I had when I was in trouble with my mom, which is, <laughs> all right, we're silent now. I guess I have to say something. And then it kind of hit hit close to home for a 13-year-old version of me. Oh, I bet. I bet. So Another great scene is when Fred's father, the wonderful Roman Bonin, reads his citations out loud. That is a real lump in the throat moment because Mm -hmm. you see him struggling to think, oh, my gosh, this, this man that my boy became, I had no idea. And yeah. Uh, it really it tears your heart out it's one of the best scenes it it really does i want to read the last paragraph of the piece that you wrote for another old movie blog because it 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 gets to the heart of so much of what works with this film and also why i wanted to bring you aboard this project said when fred and peggy finally embrace at the end of the film he tells her that it won't be easy that they will have to work 
get kicked around. It is, the, it is the last line in the film and not very romantic. She beams a radiant smile, wondrous at the at only the positive side of his double-edged declaration. I love that, a double-edged declaration, completely ignoring the warning. We see the warning. We're still imagining their uncertain future more than 70 years after the first year of the big piece. And I I love, first of all, it's a wonderful ending to a, a great piece there. Thank you. But you're right. It, it It's one of those scenes, the, again, I'm not covering the ending of the film, so I don't know who, who has that last scene. So spoiler alert, for, but I, if you're at this point of the podcast, I assume you've seen the movie. But it if you're just casually watching the film, you would think that, oh, they, they fall in love and they embrace. But you're right. There is a warning at the end. There is a sign that right now knows that there is no perfect couple, that, that her mom and dad have been fought like this. But we're watching this, the moments after the happy ending of we won the war and we came back home and oh, it wasn't so happy. And now we're embraced, we're in love. And no, it's probably not going to be that easy. And that it's kind of like a cycle that the ending of most war films would be triumphantly coming home, which is the beginning of this film. And this ends with we're in love, we're going to be married. I wonder if they had ever made a sequel <laughs> Like during the Vietnam era where they're like, they're the parents or whatever, like the beginning of the baby boom. But, but you're right. It is a sign that don't, this is not happily ever after. This is not, and this is, and it's. And actually, if I, if I could point this out, it has to do with the actual, what happened with the film. And a lot of people probably don't know this, but of course, just a couple of years after the war ended, the House Un-American Activities Committee were making things pretty hot there for Hollywood. They did not like the movie. They were particularly upset by a couple of things. First of all, that scene where Fred punches out the guy who's clearly a far right person who says, we should have been on the side of the Nazis Mm -hmm. uh, in the drugstore. Yeah. And also presenting Frederick March's boss as this greedy, rapacious, big businessman. And Frederick Mar- March kind of teases him a little bit by in his little drunken acceptance speech at his dinner. He says, mm-hmm. radicals. He's making fun of the way they think of as radicals. In 1947, a year after this movie was made, there was a broadcast, a two-part broadcast on the radio called Hollywood Fights Back where many actors in Hollywood were taking a stand against what the House on American activities were doing. Dana Andrews, Morna Loy, and Frederick March all took part in it. And they mentioned on the air how, how ridiculous it was that HUAC was against their movie. William Wyler was part of the broadcast, and he even said, and I'm going to quote here, this was 1947, I'm convinced today that I wouldn't be able to make the best years of our lives as it was made a year ago. That's shocking. This today we look at this movie as this, as you say, timeless. It's aged well. Mm-hmm. But for a first couple of years after it was made, it didn't age well. It skidded a little bit in the tracks during the House and American Activities Committee days when all of these people, at least Frederick March, whose career was affected by it, and Myrna Loy, 
and many other people in Hollywood who were liberal Democrats found themselves in the hot seat. Do you think that maybe that's why, look, when the film came out, it was a huge box office success financially and obviously won all the major Academy Awards. But for some reason, when there was a period of time when like the classic films of the golden age were being listed and rattled off, this one didn't always make the cut. Yeah, this was not for for film fans like you and me. We know this film. But when I've mentioned best years of our lives to people who would recognize Casablanca, would recognize It's a Wonderful Life, which would recognize even some of the other films that William Wyler made, like Roman Holiday or Ben-Hur, that not everyone is familiar with this film in the way that you would think that an Oscar winning blockbuster would, you know, would remember it. Uh, even, I'm not, even when, yeah. yeah, do you think that has to do with any, I didn't mean, but like, do you think that had to do with any of the pushback from HUAC? It might've been during the 1950s, but by the time I first saw it in the 1970s, I don't see why that would have been in play. I think it's just that it just might not have got much airtime. Even Casablanca, as iconic as it is today, I didn't really start to get well known until it was in the art houses. Fair enough. Even the term film noir didn't wasn't invented until the 1970s. I think it just took a while for these things to be known. Well, fair enough. I did, I, I threw it because I had no idea. This is how it is. I, I patted myself on all the research I did going into this, and lo and behold, boom! I had no idea <laughs> of this in terms of the aftermath of it. But that's fascinating that this film, which is about the the men coming home from war and then working and living and raising families would be considered I know it's about as american as you can get that scene where they come home and homer's little sister runs up and hugs him it looks like a norman Rockwell painting yeah it looks like american and apple pie yeah and it and and getting the job at the 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 soda jerk and and coming back home to coming back home to your sweetheart or wife i mean I mean, to, to look at a film like that and say it's un-American, I mean, that just shows how <laughs> how bananas that whole that whole movement yeah. was and just how completely just sort of divorced from reality it was. I mean, this is that's yeah. how much more American can you get than honoring the 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 soldiers who who defeated the forces of you know, the, won the greatest war of them all. And and the fact that that film came out the year after the war ended, that to look at PTSD and to look at how the effects of war were both physical, emotional, familial, all these different elements to, to just tackle that head on. When people think about some of the films about like coming home with a deer hunter that, that took Vietnam on, those were several years after that was a couple of years after the Vietnam War ended. This was, you know, months after VJ Day oh, that yeah. this film comes yeah. out. It's very brave. It's a very brave film to make. And Weiler was a genius. There's no getting around it. Yeah, yeah, he was one of the one of the best directors of all time. Truly, he was, and truly was, and 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 one of these people that I just didn't again his name doesn't usually come up when they talk about the genius directors and i honestly believe it's because 
his style was not in a show-off way, that he was not someone who, and again, there's some directors who I absolutely love and adore whose styles were very kind of flashy and very doing all sorts of camera somersaults and everything like that. I love Alfred Hitchcock, but he's a very show-offy director. And yeah, very gimmicky. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of, and, and that there are, we pointed out a couple of the brilliant uses of cinematography that when you think of brilliant, when people think of brilliant cinematography, they think of you know, the chariot race to go to another William Wyler <laughs> film. But I think yeah, the, they, they don't think of somebody walking down a hallway, <laughs> which is which those two hallway shots are gorgeous and so emotional and so beautiful. And and yeah, I actually think that yeah. takes more talent to make a man standing in a hallway beautiful than it is to have 15 chariots going around. <laughs> like, yeah, that looks pretty cool. It's a chariot. It better look cool. But. Yeah, he's... there's another there's another thing he does twice that I get a kick out of is when Fred is with his floozy wife. He they're getting ready to go out and she's wearing this floppy hat, and he he blows a puff of air at it in an, in an amusing way, like what a what a fluffy thing. And then later we see him do it when he's waking up in Teresa Wright's bed and she has this flounce on the canopy of her bed, and he does the same thing. He blows at it and he he smiles like what a silly frilly thing here and they have these tie-ins all over the place i don't i know that weiler was unusual in the sense that he would rehearse his cast like two weeks before he ever shot a scene and none of them ever mm. used to do that mm-hmm. and they talked it out carefully as to what their emotions were supposed to be this was not a talkative man but he wanted his actors to talk mm-hmm. and to tell each other how they were going to approach a scene I don't know who took copious notes or what, but how, how he matched up all these little little things that is so clever. Well, there's an emotional reality to it. And I think, and it's funny, like I've, I've, I've poked Ben-Hur a little bit when we're here because it's a big visual spectacle, but it's actually one of the reasons. I also happen to be a huge fan of Ben-Hur, mainly because I think it's the only Bible epic that has any emotional and human and sort of has humanity to it that that the characters aren't just standing there looking you know, regally as the <laughs> i mean the fact that he got you know that that on the surface it's a big charlton heston bible film but it feels very that there's a lot of emotion behind it and there's a lot of reality behind it and there's moments of heartbreak and there's heart there's it it's a spectacle that ends with him seeing his mother and sister are cured, which is beautiful. And that comes from a director who trusts that, who trusts the emotional reality of a scene, whether it's on a, a Roman galley, you know, rowing the big boat, or whether it's walking down the hallway, he where's the emotional reality to it? And maybe what he did, and again, I'm I obviously don't know, but maybe what he did is to create uh, an environment for these actors to feel the the lack of a better word, the reality of their character that that becomes something that Dan Andrews just will do. That just that it may not even have been something he took copious notes on. It just maybe they just created a character where that just felt natural to him, and I, I don't know the answer, but it makes for a beautiful. I movie. think I read somewhere where somebody said that about 
when Dana Andrews sits up on Teresa Wright's bed the next morning, and the first thing he does is check for his money clip. <laughs> and somebody said, yeah, that's something Dana would do. <laughs> <laughs> I, have to, I have to go back to that scene. <laughs> Oh, that's this is this has been fan. Oh man, I have absolutely th been thrilled having you on. Uh, Thank you. It's, it's been delightful. I really, I'm really glad to participate. Oh, absolutely, and absolutely. And Jacqueline T. Lynch is the author of the books uh, "Hollywood Fights Fascism," which I think we got a little taste of your knowledge on that regarding this film versus the HUAC. Was that? Did you include any part of that in in that book? I did. I did. Yes. And also I'm both actor, singer, star and movies in our time, Hollywood mirrors and mimics the 20th century. All these books are available on Amazon.com. And the movies in our time features the essay on the best years of our lives, which we are going to uh, include a link to that on the Twitter handle and everything else. Thank you so much for being part of the best years podcast. This was an absolute thrill. Thank you, Sully. It's been a delight. Thanks so much, Jacqueline T. Lynch, for these two wonderful episodes you shared with us. My brother Ted is coming back for episode 130, which is on tomorrow. You can follow the Best Minutes podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or check us out at the main sites, which is thebestminutes.com. And you can also go to Butch's Place, the Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe on Facebook. Check us out on Twitter at The Best Minutes. Also, please check out Jacqueline T. Lynch's wonderful site, which is anotheroldmovieblog.blogspot.com. And remember, there are over 170 Movies by Minute podcasts available at moviesbyminutes.com. Check out. Chances are your favorite movie is already there. So we are going to conclude tomorrow in the bar to see what's going to happen as Al and Fred stare off in the next episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. I'm your guest host for today, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.